What I love about Thrive is that there's a lot of fun people that are my age that I know share the same beliefs as me. So I know that it's like a safe place to, to share the hard things and do fun stuff with them. It's a really easy place to like invite your friends. It's like a place to hang out, but it's also a place where you can just learn about Jesus and also have like a, a ton of fun. I really love the retreats and all the games we do. We just go out for a weekend and hang out in the gospel and we play games and it's really fun. It's kind of hard to share the gospel at my school, especially when a lot of my friends aren't believers. So inviting them out for a fun night and thrive uh, really helps ease them in to where they're gonna hear the gospel. The intentionality that they always bring with the small group leaders, they've always been people that keep me accountable. And I know that I can always reach out to them and I'm super comfortable with every single person that is here. And I know that they have the best intentions of really helping me and they really want to establish that relationship relationship and that's been super comforting and just knowing that I have those people that are there to pick me up when I'm down and walk alongside me in every path of life. They always check in on me and ask if I'm okay and how I'm doing and it is a great example of how I should act with my friends. All the leaders are younger people. They're not like old, they're not old people. They're, you know, they've helped me through some tough times. My small group leaders have really like help me in being people that are just there for me and I'm able to talk to them and be open with them about anything and not be afraid to come with something that I'm embarrassed about or I just don't, they're just always there. Thrive has really helped me to connect more with God through the Bible, reading his word and like the prayer tools just help me a lot to be able to talk to him and know what I'm talking to him about. The way the small groups help me with the Bible reading tool and it's really helped me just understand how to read the Bible more and dissect it more. The Lord's helped me grow with anxiety a lot. He's helped me understand like I don't have to worry about everything because even though I'm not in control of all the things going on in my life, it's okay to not know what's gonna happen because he knows. I'm looking to uh, purposefully try to abide with him in everything I do where Whereas maybe a few years ago, I was just trying to listen to a few worship songs and go church on Sunday. Now it becomes a, a personal thing with them. A lot of times I feel the need like I need to be people's saviors, whether that's in relationships or in sports. I feel like I have to carry everything on my back. I have to be the one to fix things and that I can really make sure I'm the best in every endeavor with. And sometimes that can be a lot of pressure. What's really helped me recently is realigning my focus and being like, Jesus is the one that's under control. I can't. This is not a burden that I was ever meant to carry. I'm not meant to, you know, carry people's problems. I'm not meant to fix everything. That's something that only he can do and that's the only satisfaction that he can provide other people. It's not gonna come through me. We're all on the same mission to try to grow our relationship with Jesus. And uh, it's just a lot easier when you have uh, a bunch of other people in the same boat who are uh, all there for the same reason. It's just a really good community here. I just really love the people. Hey, can we thank Phil of uh, Carol, who leads our youth ministry, his wife, Lizzie, our, all of our small group leaders. Um, man, we're so thankful for the intentionality that, uh, that Phil and his wife and those small group leaders put into our teenagers and our middle schoolers. And as a parent who has two of them, uh, man, I'm extremely grateful for that. And so uh, if you have a teenager who's a part of that, 
uh, we just wanted to take a moment and celebrate what God is doing. And you need to know that we as a church uh, t- do not take that partnership with you lightly. And um, we believe that making and mobilizing disciples is not just something for adults, but it's something that stems from the preschool to the pulpit. And, uh, and so just wanted to recognize that. Also, uh, Phil will say this at the end of our service, but the Mobilize Retreat is just a way uh, that's coming up March 25th, 24th and 25th for your students, if that involves you. And that's a tremendous way just for your students to, to take what they're learning and to be able to be in a safe environment to begin uh, to um, just practice that out in our community. And so that's going to be a great weekend. Let me just mention a couple of things before we um, get into God's Word. If you want to turn to 1 Samuel 28, that's where we're going to be. But as you're turning there, I also want, to, want you to pay attention to this, if you can do two things at once. I just want to update you on our, uh, on our project with the M3 Innovation Center and uh, the renovations in our current facility. Some of you are like, I've not seen anything happen. And that's not true. Um, the things that you have seen going on, unfortunately, cannot be seen by the human eye necessarily, but... Uh, we have been working, uh, Lord willing, it's going to permitting this week. Lord willing, we'll start, uh, they'll start construction um, at the end of March. And so, like I said, welcome to, welcome to, uh, to the good old, uh, you know, land of building something. And, uh, but at the same time, it's a super exciting time as well. Let me say this, one of the projects uh, that we're doing, we're gonna be um, doing some of that in-house and that's the community room. Uh, if you notice from the renderings out in the lobby, um, this will be the gymnasium and it'll have serve volleyball and some of you into pickleball and, and those types of things and also will serve as another room for us. Uh, that is starting renovations here uh, within the next few weeks. And so what we need volunteers for is only for demo. So if you like to break stuff, like we need you. And and that's the only part of of the project that we'll be... We'll need a lot of volunteers for, and uh, as well as some, as some painting, but everything else is going to be done by professionals. But if you like to break stuff up, which I've found in renovations, uh, you can get a lot of people to break stuff up. You can't get as many people to put stuff back together. And so uh, you can sign up for that at the Welcome Center. The reason why we're starting uh, that community room first is we have a thing that we're going to be men- making mention of here soon called Family Week. And uh, that will be kind of, if you're used to vacation Bible school, that's going to be our form of vacation Bible school, and we need that room in June. And so that's why we're starting that project uh, first and kind of uh, taking some of that into our own hands as well. So I encourage you for that. Some of you have also been asking, because this is the last week of our series, Give Us a King. Johnny, what are we doing next? And so starting uh, March 19th, Lord willing, we're going to start a series walking through the book of Ephesians entitled, Who Am I? finding our identity in Jesus Christ. And so I'll speak more about that as we get closer. But I also want to make mention of next week, because I said the 19th. If you're paying attention, you're like, well, next Sunday is the 12th, which, by the way, is also time change Sunday. So we'll see how many of you are here at the 9 a.m. But but we're doing a special thing. You know, as I was praying, I I was like, you know what? I want to have space between, as we close out 1 Samuel, as we walk into Ephesians, and so I was thinking, man, what a, what a better thing to be able to close out this series than, than just to have just a special intentional time of worshiping Jesus as our king. 
And so we have Demetrius Hicks, who I know you don't know maybe who he is, but he's uh, one of the pastors at, at one of the church plants that we're help, helping start in Orlando. Uh, Recab and Ike have been with us, New Creation Fellowship. Uh, he would never tell you this, but an extremely talented individual. He's a recording artist. And so I'm just telling you, you do not want to miss next week. In fact, if I was you, I'd be like, I want to stay for both services. You probably never said that when I was up here, and I'm not offended, but, but that's what I would, and so I just want to encourage you, man, that's going to be a special, special time next week, and uh, I want to make mention of that so you don't miss it. It's not going to be the same online, so if you're watching online, I'm sorry. Uh, we still want you, but we want you here. You're just, it's not the same. So, um, so anyway, those are just some things that I want to make mention of. All right, 1 Samuel 28. Um, if you were following along in our reading plan, I don't know if you noticed last week, but you're like, okay, I'm supposed to read 1 Samuel 26, 27, then I'm supposed to jump to chapter 29 and 30. Like, that seems weird. And, and the reason why last week Mark spoke primarily on 1 Samuel 26, so let me give you an overview of everything that has happened in chapter 27, chapter 29, and chapter 30. Okay, and, and, and it'll make sense. So chapter 27, uh, David flees into the land of the Philistines. I mean, that's how desperate he is. He's like, okay, the only way that I can get away from King Saul who wants my life is to go into enemy territory. And so he seeks out Achish the king, much like he did before, but this time he goes up with a different plan. I'm not gonna act like a crazy individual. And so he seeks out Achish. Achish is like, man, I, I would love to have David as now my uh, partner, as my ally rather than my adversary. And so uh, David strikes up this partnership with Achish, but what Achish doesn't know is David is going out and he's actually killing Philistines rather than killing enemies of the, of, of the Philistines behind Achish's back. And then we go jump into chapter 29 and, or at the beginning of chapter 28, let me say this, verses one and two, because we're not gonna spend time on this. And now all of a sudden the Philistines are about to wage war against Israel. And Achish approaches David and says, hey, are you gonna fight with us? And David's like, yes, I will fight with you. So think about the predicament that David's in. Am I really gonna go against the people that I will one day be king over my people? But in chapter 29, the leaders of the army of the Philistines hear and are like, Achish, we're not going to battle with David. Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? Like, like he's the one who killed Goliath. You remember that little incident? And so uh, his ruler or his uh, generals, Achish's generals, want to have nothing to do with going to battle with David. And so Achish approaches David and says, David, it's not going to work. You're not going to be able to go to battle with us. Go back home. And at the time, David and his men and his wives and, his, and their children are staying in a town of Ziklag, and when they go back to Ziklag, here's what they find in chapter 30. They find that the Amalekites have totally wiped Ziklag out. They've burned it down to the ground, and they've taken their wives and children, and David finds himself in such a dark place that even his own men now are wanting to stone David. And it's in that moment of weakness that David inquires of the Lord and is like, Lord, what do we do? To make a long story short, David is able to get back his wife and his children at the end of chapter 30. So the reason why you read 26, 27, 29, and 30 is just to get that story played out. And now we're in chapter 28 and chapter 30 because I want us to see in these two chapters the unfortunate results that come 
from a man who was called to be king, who really found himself, instead of seeing the Lord as his king and himself as the Lord's servant, he got caught up seeing himself as king and the Lord as his servant. And how that played out throughout his life to the end of his days that we will find in chapter 31. So here's the title of the message this morning. Who is your king? So we close out this series. Let's just ask ourselves that question again. Who is your king? If you spend any time with us in this series, if you call this place your home, that would be most of you because we started it in October. We know what the Sunday school answer is, don't we? Like we know what we're supposed to answer, Jesus. But I don't want you to give the Sunday school answer right now because it's just you and your mind right now as I ask that question. I really, wanna, I really want you to be honest with yourselves. Who's your king right now? Because as we look at chapter 28, here's what we find. In fact, some of you approached me in the lobby last week and said, hey, Johnny, are we gonna, are we gonna, because you thought maybe we skipped over 28 because 28 is just kind of a weird, wonky passage, right? I mean, and, and so I had some conversation even last week in the lobby that was like, hey, Johnny, are we gonna talk with 28? Like that's some crazy stuff happening in chapter 28. Like you've got this, this seance going on and Saul visits this, this witch and they call Samuel up from the dead. Like that's crazy stuff. But here's what I want you to know. Oftentimes because of movies or whatever, we can kind of dismiss that what goes on in chapter 28 is actually real. In fact, God commanded Israel to drive out of the land of Israel when they inhabited it, all those who practiced the occult. Necromancers, witches. We see that in Deuteronomy 18, verses nine through 13. We see it in Leviticus 19, 31. We see it in chapter 20 of Leviticus, verse six, verse seven. And so what I want us when we approach this is this is not some fanciful Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter thing going on here. Like this is legit. Demonic forces are real. Ephesians six says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Demonic forces are real, evil is real, and though there are at times things that are sensationalized and fictionalized like everything else, that does not mean that practicing the occult is not something that is just fake, fictitious. It's real. It's real. It's wrong. It's wicked. And I just say that from the jump so that as we approach this, we can understand the seriousness and the desperation by which we find Saul right now. So here's the idea that I want you to get today. So we ask ourselves this question, who is my king? Who is your king? It's this, that your heart, my heart, is prone to see yourself, my heart's prone to see myself as king and the Lord as your servant, as my servant. That's what my heart's prone to. Okay, I'm just gonna let you know that. My, my heart is prone to see myself as king and the Lord as my servant, regardless of the Sunday school answer that I wanna give. That's what my heart's prone to, and that's what yours is as well. So let's go to the New Testament, just remind ourselves of what is true. John 15, five, a very important verse in the culture of Salem Chapel. It's on the wall of the cafe as you get coffee every Sunday morning. John 15, five, Jesus says this, I am the vine, 
I'm the life source. You are the branches. He doesn't say, you're the vine, I'm the branches. No, I'm your life source. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That's what you and I want for our life. We want our life to have a sense of significance for eternity, to give our lives to things that last. And then Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. What's our definition of abide here at Salem Chapel? The word literally means to remain, to commune. We define it this way, walking hand in hand with Jesus as he leads the way. But you know how I can get caught up practically living my life? I come up with my own definition of abide. Walking hand in hand with Jesus as I lead the way. I wonder how many of you right now, as I say that, if you were honest with yourself, were like, man, that's how I've lived this last week. That's how I've lived this last month. That's how I've lived these last years. In this particular situation, it's been walking hand in hand with Jesus. Like, dude, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna open up my Bible. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the word. I'm gonna pray to him. But Lord, I wanna lead the way. If that's true of you, why is that true? Because your heart is prone to see yourself as king and the Lord as your servant and that's exactly how Saul lived his life. So here's what I wanna do this morning. First of all, I wanna give you characteristics. What are the characteristics of seeing yourself as king and the Lord as your servant? I think there's two of them that we find in chapter 28. So look at verses five and six. Let's actually start in verse three. Now Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So he's driven out all those that practice the occult out of the land. Like, good Saul, that's what you're called to do by God. We mentioned those verses in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, verse 14, or verse four. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all of Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. So, so this is about to go down, the Philistines against Israel, verse five. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, what was his response? He was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, like, good job, Saul. But unfortunately, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So remember, they did not have the Bible in its totality back then. So the way that the Lord primarily spoke was through dreams, through the Urim and the Thummim, the, the two stones that the high priest had, that those stones would reveal uh, God's will. I know it sounds kind of Indiana Jones's, but, but, but that's, that's how the Lord worked, or by the prophets, by the mouthpiece of God, like he did with Samuel. The problem is, Saul's going to the Lord, and the Lord's not answering him. So here's the first characteristic of seeing yourself as king and the Lord as your servant. You relegate the Lord to preserve, protect, and provide for your agenda. Relegate meaning demean, lower. Like we lower our view of the Lord. We relegate the Lord to preserve, protect, and provide for our agenda. Listen to me, as we've walked through these chapters in 1 Samuel, Saul's agenda was his idol. It was his idol. 
He worshiped his agenda. He lived as though the Lord should worship it too. How can I preserve my platform as being king in spite of my disobedience? And Lord, you're supposed to worship that agenda too. Now, in verse 6, we see that Saul inquired of the Lord. But what you'll find in 1 Samuel, just if you don't remember, when I walked through 1 Samuel, I looked at how many times is that phrase you that Saul inquired of the Lord? And here's what I found that was interesting. Every time that it's mentioned, Saul inquires of the Lord after he's already made the decisions that he wants to do, the way he wants them done. That's what I like to call the Lord get me out of this inquiry. And let me just raise my hand. I've made those inquiries. But the problem is, is when we're only inquiring of the Lord, when we're like, Lord, I need you to get me out of this. That's the 911 inquiries, if you want to call it that way. Like, Lord, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to your word. I'm praying to you. But the only time I do it is when I do my own thing and it doesn't work out the way that I want. So, Lord, let me inquire of you right now. The problem is, is those are motivated out of selfishness rather than submission. Because you're seeing yourself as king and the Lord is your servant. And you're relegating the Lord as Lord, here's your responsibility. Here's what your job is. Here's what your role is in my life. To preserve, protect, to provide for my agenda. See, God had already spoken to Saul. God had already spoken to Saul. Remember? God spoke to Saul when he told Saul what he should do with the Amalekites. The problem is Saul didn't listen. He didn't like what God said. And he wanted God to say something different that lined up with what Saul wanted. And sometimes we may be able to even view God here and almost feel sorry for Saul, like, like, like the Lord is like treating Saul like his whipping boy, right? Like, like he's, just, he's just abusing Saul and Saul, I've passed on for you and there's no hope for Saul. But here's what we've gotta do. We've gotta pan out from what we see with Saul and look at the totality of scripture to understand God's character in relation to Saul. The consequences that God brought into Saul's life were to bring him to a point of repentance. You're like, Johnny, I didn't read that specifically in 1 Samuel. Well, here's why I say that. Let's look at how God treated David. Because in 1 Samuel, David looks like a rock star until we go to 2 Samuel. But when we think about Saul, Saul's worst was that he was disobedient and he didn't obey God and he made a sacrifice as well that was the job of the priest to do. And those are Saul's worst transgressions. Well, let's go over to David here. We look at David, if you know the story of David, David rapes Bathsheba, kills her husband, which in my mind, if we're gonna categorize sin, is so much worse in the ramifications that that has towards other individuals than even what Saul had done. But why does God call Saul a man after his own heart? 
It was the way that Saul versus, or the way that David versus Saul responded to the rebuke and to the truth that he was given in relationship to what he did. Oh, David would get caught up in seeing himself as king. Make no mistake about it. But when he was confronted with that sin, David repented. David sought forgiveness. David humbled himself. He saw himself as a servant of the Lord, not the Lord as his servant. And see, you can respond one of two ways when you're confronted with your sin. And when I'm confronted with my sin, here's the first way. I can practice remorse. What is remorse? I'm sorry for the consequences I'm experiencing or may experience that could cause harm to my agenda. Don't get it twisted. We've got to understand the difference between remorse and repentance. But see, when I'm relegating the Lord to provide, protect, preserve my agenda, there's a lot of remorse, but there's not much repentance. Because at the end of the day, I'm only sorry for the consequences that are coming into my life that are causing me not to get what I want. That was Saul's MO. What about repentance? What's repentance? Man, I'm sorry for the sin that I've committed. Grieving the consequences, sure, but more importantly, I am sorry for the sin that I've committed towards God and towards those that I hurt. But man, when we see ourselves as king and the Lord of our servant, it is so easy to relegate, to demean, to diminish the Lord as simply preserving, protecting, and providing for my agenda. God, that's what you're here to do. Here's a second consequence. It's found in verses seven through 25, and we're not gonna read all these verses, but I do wanna read verses seven through 13 so that you can see this. Look at verse seven. Because the Lord's not responding to Saul. Then Saul said to his servants, well, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. Really? What did we just read that Saul had just done? Man, he drove out all of them out of the land. Now he's wanting to inquire, not of the Lord, but of a witch. And his servants said to them, behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul had done. So this time she doesn't know who's speaking to her. How he's cut off all the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Sadly, the witch knows more than Saul does right now. Verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Do you see even Saul relegating and demeaning the Lord? Like I'm actually going to swear by the Lord. That's capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. The tetragrammaton, the the name that the Lord uses to sign his name to promises that he makes. And Saul's like, I'm gonna actually say, no, 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 I'm gonna swear by the Lord. I'm gonna use the Lord to accomplish my agenda. It says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Verse 11, then the woman said, well, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, like she didn't even think this was gonna happen. 
She cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul, verse 13. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? Here's the second characteristic of seeing yourself as king and the Lord as your servant, because maybe you're having trouble to determine whether or not that's you today. Your obedience to the Lord is based on the situation rather than on conviction. Your obedience isn't driven by, this is what God says. This is, this tells me how much God loves me. This reminds me what God has done for me in spite of who I am. Your obedience isn't based on that, it's just based on the situation. Like, does it make sense for me to obey right now? Or does it make sense for me to disobey? Because Saul was desperate. Do you feel it as you read this? Saul was desperate and his desperation, you know what it did? It dictated his disobedience. His desperation didn't lead him to repentance. His desperation led him to disobedience. And look at the risk that Saul takes. Like Saul takes the risk to totally disobey the Lord and be at a place to where he's like, I've got to decide, dis disguise myself so this can happen. i got to go at night so this can happen. Let me just put a map up here. It'll be the last time I show a map, I think, for a while. Um, so here's where, here's where the Israelites are. Here's where the Philistines are. I want you to see the journey that Saul would have to take to get to this witch this sorcerer in Endor, he would have actually had to go through enemy camp to get to the Philistines. Why do I show you that? I want you to see how desperate Saul was, which is why he disguised himself. It wasn't just so the witch wouldn't know who he was, it's so the Philistines wouldn't know who he was. But what you find as you read through verses 15 through 18, and we don't have time to do it this morning, is that Samuel didn't say anything new. He's actually upset. Like, you're, you're ruining my peace. And you're wanting me to say something that God's already said to you. Which, by the way, if you want to write in your margins next to those verses, that's literally 1 Samuel 15. But what are the markers that you and I are being disobedient based or being only obedient on the situation rather than the condition. Well, if we look at Saul, I think, I think one marker is, is that we want to disguise our behavior. I'm going to make it look like I'm being obedient on conviction rather than situation. I'm going to play, I know how to play the game well. Some of us, we've grown up in church our whole life. We know the right answers. We know the Bible backwards and forwards, like we know the lingo, we know the game. We even know how to fool our spouses maybe. But at the end of the day, my Christian life is driven by my agenda and seeing myself as king and the Lord as my servant. And my obedience is at best situational rather than based on conviction. And so I, I work really hard at disguising that. How about this? We know how to be disobedient, but we know how to do it in secret. Because Saul went at night. He went in secret. 
And what's sad is, is when we go back to think about what was Saul's mission at the end of the day by God? He was appointed to save God's people from the hand of the Philistines. To protect those that I love. That was God's mission for Saul. But unfortunately, what Samuel reveals is now both Saul and the people are about to be given into the hands of the Philistines and Samuel says, it's gonna happen tomorrow. And what we find at the end of these verses in this encounter with, in verse 20, with, with this witch, this sorcerer at Endor, is the once mighty Saul, the one that was head and shoulders above all the other people of Israel in stature, the one that was handsome, the one that was talented, the one that had all the potential. Now, once tall, he finds himself flat on the floor, desperate, discouraged, despondent, but not because he sees his sin before God, because he sees that his own agenda is not gonna happen. And unfortunately, what's so sad is the only help that's available to him is a woman who practices witchcraft. But what are the consequences of seeing yourself as king and the Lord as your servant? We talked about the characteristics. I wanna close with the consequences. I think there's two of them as well. Here's the first consequence of seeing yourself as king and the Lord is your servant. You live life out of fear. That's how you live life. That's how I live life. I live it out of fear. Why do I say that? Well, in verse five, remember we read it earlier. What was Saul's response to the armies of the Philistines? Man, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. But that fear did not draw him to God in an attitude of repentance and like, Lord, I finally hit the point where I see that my agenda is not king, you're king. Lord, I'm sorry, I repent. I see what I've done in regards to David. I see what I've done in regard to your instruction. So when I inquire of you, Lord, I'm coming in an attitude of repentance rather than in an attitude of pride. You know what I've found of myself and others? And I say myself as well, lest you think that I'm better than anybody else, is that people that are the most fearful are people that see themselves as king. See, we would think it's the opposite. We would think, no, 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 those people that see themselves as king, that project that they've got it all together, that project that they're competent, in fact, more competent than anybody else in the room, we would equate strength with those people. But I'm here to tell you and peel back the veneer that those people are the most fearful people in the room. Why do I say that? Because when you view yourself, when I view myself as my provider, my protector of everything that I have, here's what happens. I live life on the defensive. Because I have everything to lose if it's dependent upon me. And then I see everyone else, including God, as my servants to protect what I have accumulated. Do that in my marriage, do that in my relationships with friends, do that with my coworkers, do that with God. And another reason why you're so fearful when you see yourself as king is because even you know that you don't have it all together. 
So you've got to project and you've got to pretend. And the moment that that crack starts to develop in your veneer, you've got to act in some way or remove that person or leave that relationship or whatever it is because they can't see that I don't have it all together. And we live life just like Saul, completely motivated out of fear. Why do I say that? Because that's the response Saul had when he was anointed king. What does he do? He goes, runs, and hides in the baggage. That's how he acts with Goliath. He should have been the one out there. But he's hanging out in his tent and letting someone else do what he was called to do. Why? Because he was afraid. Why did he react the way that he did towards David? Because he was afraid that David was going to take what he had, understanding that what he had was not accomplished by him. It was given to him by God. And nothing feeds our fear more than seeing ourselves as king. So what's a consequence of seeing yourself? As someone that you're not, man, you're afraid. Here's the second consequence, and it's found in verse 4 through 10 of chapter 31. So turn to 31. Look at verse 4. Here we find ourselves. The Philistines have attacked. Saul sees that his end has come. He doesn't want to give the satisfaction to the Philistines to kill him. So in the end of verse 4, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Verse 7, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. What did they do? They abandoned their cities and they fled. Look at this. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and they stripped him of his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, which is a pagan god, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshen. What a terrible ending of this book, Right? But I think it reveals to us a sobering consequence of seeing ourselves as king and the Lord is your servant. Not only do you live life out of fear, but you destroy yourself and those around you. That's what can happen. You can destroy yourself and those around you. Listen to me. If you hear one thing today, hear this. That the road that sees yourself as king never Never. Can you say that with me? Say that word. Never. Say it one more time. Never. The road that sees yourself, that sees myself as my king, never leads to a positive destination. Never. And listen to me. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in in the Bible. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we see the plan of the enemy being the same as what we see with Saul. That I'm going to get God's people to see themselves as their own God and see the Lord as withholding what is best from them. Satan's plan hasn't changed since the beginning 
of creating man and woman, that he wants us to see ourselves as king. And the Lord relegated at best to our servant. John 10, 10 says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the way that the enemy will steal what is good and kill what is good and destroy what is good in your life is to get you in believing the lie that you are king. And that you can live this life and experience God's best for you and experience the life abundantly that the Lord promises in John 10, 10. And that you can experience that by seeing yourself as king and the Lord as your servant. And sadly, this book ends in such a tragedy because Saul's perspective and how he lived his life led to his destruction, it led to his family's destruction, and it led to the people that he was supposed to protect, their destruction. One of the saddest verses for me is the end of verse seven, and the Philistines came and lived in the cities that God meant for his people. So what's our response this morning? What's our response if you sit here today and you're like, and the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and you're like, holy cow, Lord, I've missed it. I've been living my life as king. I've relegated you as someone that just fulfills my agenda. My obedience is based on the situation, man. It's not based on conviction. Maybe the Lord's even revealing to you how you're living your life out of fear because you're living your life as how you can preserve what you have. And you're living your life as a fraud. And though it's a harsh word, we need to be reminded that when we say, I'm gonna turn on that road, and I'm gonna go down the road to see myself as king, that it just doesn't hurt you, it hurts those around you. It hurts the people that God entrusted into your care. And so our response is what God always wanted for Saul, repentance. Repentance. I want to read to you Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. We know verse 20, but we aren't as familiar with verse 19, where the Lord says this, Jesus says this, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So the consequences that come into our life as a result of sin are meant to draw us back to him. Not to run away from him. So be zealous and repent. Confess your sin, not remorse, but repentance. And then Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Doesn't say Jesus kicks the door in. He lovingly knocks. Johnny, when are you gonna open the door? When are you going 
to see that I love you and this way that you're going is not the way that I have for you. I'm knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he doesn't say I will reject him. He says, I will come to him, I will come to her and eat with him and he with me. So here's what I want us to do. Next week, we're gonna praise Jesus as our king. Before we can praise him, we need to repent where we need to repent. And so I just want us in the room, just in the quietness, it's just for you to spend time with God. And search your heart for where you're seeing yourself as king. And repent of that. And rejoice in knowing that 1 John 1, 9 says, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. There's never a place that you can go where Jesus says, that's too far. Let's run to the arms of the Father. Let's say we're sorry for what we need to repent of. Let's cling to God's forgiveness and let's live into the life abundantly that he desires for us because he's king and we get to serve him. Let's examine our hearts this morning just in this quietness and then I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray here in a moment, but I just, listen, we're gonna sing this song and I, I don't want us to stand just because we're supposed to stand. Like if you need to just allow these words to just shape your prayers to the Lord as you talk to him, and I want you to stay seated. I want you to do that. Nobody's thinking, well, that person's seated because they got something worse than I got going on. Like, like that's not what this is about. But I just want us to have space to where we can talk with the Lord. So if you want to stand, you can stand. But if you need to sit, man, I want you to sit. God wants you to sit. God wants you to talk to him. So I want to encourage you to do that. Lord, 
Lord, I know I've talked to you this week about this, even today. Lord, forgive me, though, for the sin of seeing myself as king so often. And God, seeing you as my servant, Lord, that's even hard to say out loud. But Lord, part of repentance is calling sin what sin is. And so Lord, I pray for every heart in this room, those watching us online, those listening maybe in their car later on during the week or wherever that is, that we would not just miss opportunities to where you are asking us to examine our lives, that the consequences that we are experiencing do not dictate that you are a cruel God, but that you're a loving God. You are wanting to draw us back to yourself. You're knocking. And God, help us to listen, to hear that knocking, to not be desensitized to it, to be numb to it, to be callous to it, but to open the door and knowing that when you come in, you don't come in wanting to reject, you come in wanting to love and forgive and to abide with us. God, guard us from thinking that we can walk hand in hand with you and lead the way. Lord, our hearts say, give us a king. God, guard us from saying, I'm that king. And may we lift our eyes to see that you are our king, our strong, our mighty, our loving king. In Jesus' name, amen.